Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. My name is Drew Burns, and I'm a part of a small group of dentists who believe something crazy. We believe the standard of care is just not good enough. We demand the best of ourselves and the best for our patients. We believe the best way? No, the only way to practice dentistry is on our own terms. If you ask the dental consultants or the corporate CEOs, they tell you that what we're doing isn't smart, that fee-for-service dentistry is dead, and that the golden age of dentistry is over. Yet, while others focus on profits first, we focus on the patient first. And yet our offices are some of the most profitable in the entire country because we invest in ourselves and we are doing things right. It's our name on the door and it's our reputation on the line. My name is Drew Burns and I am a fee-for-service dentist. This is the Fee-for-Service Dentist Podcast and these are our stories. Okay, hey, welcome to the Fee-for-Service Dentist Podcast. I'm Dr. Sonny Spira. I'm still filling in for Drew Burns. And it looks like the foreseeable future. And today we have a special guest, someone that we haven't had on before, or I don't know if we've had anybody in this realm. Um, uh, Steve Moskowitz is our guest. I heard him speak on another uh, area and I was so pumped and jacked. I immediately reached out to him and he graciously agreed to do this. He's a wealth of information. Let me give you a little bit of his background. And when he starts to speak, you, you're just going to stop doing what you're doing and just listen. So he's a tax attorney, 30 years experience. He was a CPA prior to that. And prior to that, he was a New York City cabbie. <laughs> We're going to have to ask you a few questions about that. But welcome, Steve. How are you? Thanks so much for inviting me. The pleasure is all mine. So tell me a little bit about, I, I got to have some cabbie experiences. Let, let's start with that. I'm an you know, East Coast guy. Let's hear him. One of the things that I'd say about driving the cab, although it was many moons ago, I still remember it vividly. And I'd like to say I learned as much driving a cab as I did in law school and accounting <laughs> school and all that. And I learned about dealing with people and listening to them. Because the most important thing is, you know, client comes in and he has problems. You want to listen to you. And what I found as a cabbie is people would really open up to you. And the reason they'd open up, here you are in New York City. And that person getting a cab knows, I'm never going to see you again. I can confess to anything. I can get it off my <laughs> chest. I feel so much better. And they talk to me. Well, you know what? That's what I'm doing as an attorney. Now, we have attorney-client privilege, so you don't have to worry about your secret staying a secret. But that was one of the first things I learned. Listen. And then after I listen, what can we do to address your problem. And, and there's so many things that I really learned about people and life driving that cab that really apply today as a tax attorney. So to me, that was a very valuable experience. I'm very proud of it. And anybody that knows me more than five minutes knows that I started out as a New York City cab. <laughs> Any famous uh, customers during those years? Not that I knew of. Maybe they were in <laughs> hiding at the time. Okay. So New York City cabbie, and then you went to, you, you became a CPA. Where'd you go to college? 
So I got my bachelor's degree in accounting from Drexel University in Philadelphia. Okay. Then I went on, I got my MBA in accounting at New York University in New York City. Then I became a CPA. Then I got my law degree at New York Law School, obviously New York City. Then I became an attorney in New York. Then I came out to California and I got my advanced law degree, specialization in tax, because I wanted to be the top dog in tax. And I said, I want to have all the credentials. So I got my advanced law degree, specialization in tax at Golden Gate Law School. And then I was also a professor for 10 years. So I taught on the side, I taught at night, and it was perfect because while I was building my practice up, you know, when you start a practice, the clients aren't fighting with each other to become your clients. So it, the teaching was perfect because I got to make some money at night and start up my little practice in the daytime. And I basically went from a shoebox by myself and then knock on wood, I was very blessed and went on and the practice grew and grew and grew. And I also, you know, I enjoyed the teaching and a lot, you know, the people that I taught, I taught mostly the advanced stuff, the graduate stuff. And I taught in law school, graduate school, and I also taught in university. A lot of my students were middle-aged business people getting a more advanced degree and they became clients and they started referring things to me. And then I, you know, I enjoyed speaking. So I would go and I would speak, be the rubber chicken after dinner speaker. And then I got on TV and radio. So I've been on radio for 30 years. Obviously I started broadcasting from the sandbox in kindergarten. And then I spent 17 years on TV, seven years on Fox, 10 years NBC. I still frequently do guest appearances. And I talk about my favorite subject in the world, tax. And, and what everybody tells me is they say, you know, before we met you, you know, we, we've had other tax guys go on. They're dry as dust. They bring books. They read. They say things. And section number one, two, three, four provides that. And they say, you go, go on and you take a subject that's so complex, but you make it understandable and fun and usable to the listener. And also what I found was that helped me doing jury trials, because what's the difference between a jury and a TV audience? A TV audience is a general audience and you're explaining a complex concept. What's a jury? Same thing. So what I would do is I just explain things to the jury and it worked out real well for the clients and everybody was happy. Another thing is guys that have a real heavy duty tax background like me usually go to work for the giant firms whose clients are the Fortune 500. And that's how I started out too. I always worked hard and I said, well, okay, you know, and I, I started out, I was, I was a poor boy, didn't want to be a poor boy. That's why I went to school. And basically I was working and going to school at the same time because I wanted to make something out of myself. And here I was working for this giant firm for the Fortune 500 clients. And one night I'm working away and it dawns on me, you know, I could be the best guy or the worst guy 
I am not going to make any difference to a Fortune 500. Do I want to spend the rest of my career where it doesn't even matter if I show up? I said, no. So I stayed long enough to get some good experience. And then I went out on my own. And I remember one of my very first cases, I was sitting in court next to my client. He was an older gentleman. And every five minutes, he would remind me, if you lose my case, he was going to lose everything he'd worked for in a lifetime. Now, and he had his whole family in the courtroom and at breaks, they were reminding me in case his reminding me wasn't enough. Yeah, he's all in. Yeah. And anybody else that would have made him nervous. For me, it was exhilarating. I thought back to the Fortune 500 and said, you know what? To this guy, I'm the most important person in the world. I'm, I'm that pilot of the plane. I'm the guy that stands between enjoy, enjoying what he worked for in a lifetime and total ruination. Jury came back. The guy walked free. He got to keep his money. And I remember how thrilled he was. To this day, and this is, you know, we're talking 30 years ago. To this day, I remember that guy and how thrilled I was to help him, take care of him, get him off. And to this very day, I still get the same visceral thrill when I say to a client, hey, you know, if we do this and that, you legally don't have to pay the taxes. It still thrills me. I'm, I'm, I'm so blessed because I really enjoy doing this. It's fun for me. And I enjoy it. I get so much out of it. And one of the things I, I point out, if I'm talking to mom and pop on the corner store, I say, you know what, mom and pop, you know, you pay more in taxes than Apple does. Now, your gross revenue is a lot, lot, lot less than Apple, but you're paying more in taxes. What, what's up with this? And what happens is that what most people don't realize about the tax law is there's two purposes of the tax law. The future of fee-for-service dentistry is based in membership patients. If you need help starting your membership plan, or if your plan is too big for your team to manage, visit dentalmembershipdirect.com to set up your free membership growth solution demo with our team. One we all know about is to extract money from us. But the other purpose in a democracy even though the government wants us to do something like buy a building or do something else, they can't order us to do it. So how does a government get you to do something they want you to do, which is good for the economy, but they can't order you. They give you a tax incentive. And that's part of what we're gonna be talking about today, tax incentives. Now the big fortune 500, you see it every year in the newspaper, all these companies making profits with billions with a B, don't pay any taxes because of these tax incentives. And what I say is, well, okay, you don't have to be a Fortune 500. You can be just a regular size business, whether you're a mom and pop, whether you're a mid-sized business, whatever size, you don't have to be Fortune 500. And a lot of people say to me, well, well, where is all this stuff? What's the secret code? And I said, well, here's one of the things you have to deal with with the tax law. Suppose I gave you a business card and I said, you take this card to the IRS and you won't have to pay any taxes. I bet you take the card to the IRS, it's all legal. But suppose I went ahead and I put that business card on your desk and then I backed up a dump truck 
and I dumped a million business cards on your desk. And I said, there you go. Chances are you would never take what I'll call the magic business card to the IRS to not pay taxes. And I could say to you, if I was a congressperson, well, I, the, I put it right on your desk. Why didn't you take it? It was right there. It was, it's your fault. And the reason is, is because you couldn't find it with those other million business cards. If you understand that concept, you understand the tax law. There's it's like, it's like a remember you know, those kids game, the treasure chest, you know, you go hunt for Easter eggs, you find the treasure. That's what the internal revenue code is. It's filled with treasure, but you have to know where to look. And for most people, it's just so convoluted and they don't even think about it. And I'll, I, I'll never forget one of my law school classmates. One day he called me and he said, Steve, he was working on his tax. And I said, I, I have a question for you. And I said, sure. He asked me the question. I said, oh, I'll give you the reference. And I gave him the page number in the Internal Revenue Code. And he said, Steve, this may come as a shock to you, but not all American homes come equipped with their very own Internal Revenue Code. I said, oh. So I said, okay, I'll just do it for you. And basically that's what I've been doing the rest of my life. Awesome. That's awesome. So th those are some of the things that we're going to touch on. So let let's dive right in. So let's talk a little bit. And I've heard you talk uh, again, I, I, I had the pleasure and I've also had the pleasure of, of, of uh, working with you to, to uh, bring on your services for our, for our company. So, you know, full disclosure, I am about to become a client. So um, that's happening right now. So let's talk about the real estate portion, because I know that's got a lot of, um, uh, what do you call it? In, 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 what was the word you just used? Um, they're magic, a couple of magic cards, right? So magic. It's ma a lot, lot of magic here. <laughs> and real estate is one of the favorite areas. And what happens is the government gives us so much. For example, if you sell real estate, you pay less tax because you sell it at a capital gains rate. If you sell your services or you sell a product, you pay way more in taxes because that's ordinary income. But the government gives us so much here. For example, one of the most beautiful things, and, and this is going to bring, I know this isn't, isn't, this is only voice, it's not picture, but this can be, bring a real tear to your eye. The most beautiful words in the English language, it sounds so romantic is a positive cash flow with a tax loss. Doesn't that just set your heart a flutter? I know it does mine. So what happens is let's say we have a situation. Let's say that we have a building and in the year we take in more cash than we spend on it. So we have a cash profit. We have more cash now than we did before because of our building. But then through depreciation, we can wipe out the profit and even more so. So we have something called depreciation. Now you don't write a check to depreciation and with real estate, the way a lot of people make money is with something called OPM, other people's money. Other people's money, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's, people are really brave with other people's money. Nothing like some <laughs> OPM, love OPM. And what happens is you say, well, okay, you know what? Yeah, I'm gonna pay the bank some interest. But the profit I'm going to be making is way more than the interest. So I'm coming out ahead here. But I want to pay taxes on the building. So through the use of depreciation, which again, you're not writing a check to depreciation. It's a paper entry. It's you're making an entry on your tax return. 
you can go ahead and you can wipe out your profit on the building and that's really nice but suppose somebody gives you something really nice what do you say right you say thank you well most people say thank you a lawyer says more i want more <laughs> and that's what the tax code is here for so you say well suppose let's take a look at this example suppose we have sally and sally is a brain surgeon she has her own medical practice and she's married to Bob, who's a householder. And Sally is making Boku on her medical practice. And she's also making Boku on her rental building. She practices in the building that she owns and she can be a landlord too. So what happens is we say through the use of depreciation, even though Sally has a positive cash flow not only do we wipe out her profits, so there's no taxes on the building, we have some loss left over. But again, it's a paper loss. You didn't lose money, you made money. Can Sally offset that paper loss against her profits from the business, wages, dividends, interest, other income? If you talk to most accountants, they'll say no. And if you ask them why, they say, oh, the Powell rules. PAL, P-A-L, Passive Activity Loss Rules, which essentially says you can't take the rental losses, which is a passive income, against ordinary income. But there's an exception. It's called being a real estate professional. Now, there's a bunch of rules, and I won't bore you with them, but the big thing with real estate professional is one of the spouses, and if you're married, it only takes one, one of the spouses has to spend more than half of their business time on the real estate venture and spend at least 750 hours. So let's go back to Sally and Bob. Remember Bob was a house husband? Yes. Mm -hmm. Sally says, Bob, honey, get off the sofa. Stop eating the bonbons. You can tape Oprah. And you'll be managing my building now. Now Bob qualifies to become a real estate professional because he spent, well, he has no other business time. This works really well when you have a house spouse and somebody that's working. And he spends the more than 750 hours a year. And now Sally gets to take what otherwise would have been a passive loss that she could not write off against her medical practice and her other income, dividends, interest, wages, et cetera. And she does get to write it off. So now we have the beauty of not only do we make a cash profit from the building, we've made a cash profit from her medical practice. We made a cash profit from her investments. And guess what? We don't pay any income taxes. That is just a little touch and a tease what the Fortune 500 does and why wealthy people don't pay taxes. So the bottom line, or, or they'll also pay a tax rate way less than somebody making what I'll call as a normal income. So we say, well, oh, okay, I love that idea of depreciation. And how's that work anyway? Well, if we have a commercial building, we have to go ahead and write that off over 39 years. If it's a residential property, and it's 27 and a half. But there's something called cost segregation analysis. 
which works on the time value of money. So what we do with cost segregation analysis is we send an engineer to the property and he or she reviews the property and says, well, this portion of the property, this is 39 year property, this is 27 and a half year property, but this portion is 15 year property and this portion is 10 year property and this portion is five year property and this portion you can write off all in the first year. So what happens is it greatly accelerates the depreciation. This is how the banks make the money, time value of money. A benefit today is more valuable than a benefit tomorrow. Same way if I said to you, you know, you have a bill coming up and you could pay the bill today or you could pay it many years from today. And if you pay it many years from today, you won't be paying any interest, just be, pay, be paying the same dollar amount. Well, of course you say, I'll pay that bill in the future because you have use of the money, you can invest it. And by the time it's time to pay the bill, you have a lot of money that you wouldn't have had because you're using money that you otherwise would have paid for that debt, your taxes, and you're earning on that and you can make a tremendous amount of money. So we take a look at cost segregation analysis. There's a lot of other things with real estate too. For example, 1031 exchanges. So we say, well, okay, suppose I have a building and I would like to dispose of that building. I don't want to pay any taxes, of course. And I'd like to obtain another building. So what we can do is a 1031 exchange and a swap where we don't pay the taxes. And there's some other things too. The last big tax act limited 1031s to just property, but there's a way around that too. So for example, if you had a property like an apartment house or hotel where you're selling not just the building, but you're selling the furniture and appliances, things like that, you would get around that by doing something called bonus depreciation, essentially depreciating everything in that first year. There's, you know, you, you told me I was, I was limited to 10 hours in this podcast, so I have to cut down what I'm going to say today. No joke. If you gave me 10 hours, I, I still wouldn't be enough time. That's why this stuff is so fascinating and exciting to me. There's just so much there. But much like that dump truck that dropped off the million business cards on the desk, you have to know, say, well, I think this card would be the most interesting for the day. And, and this card, it, it's right here, you know, under my lunch. Let me pull this card out. So the bottom line is we say, well, okay, we can go ahead and do that. And then there's so much else we can do. For example, sometimes people will say, you know, they like having an investment in real property, but they don't like being a landlord. They don't like getting a call at three o'clock in the morning. Hey, I lost my key or, you know, call on Saturday night. Hey, my drain is stopped up. And they say, I'm, I'm really tired of being a landlord, but I don't want to pay the taxes. So a 1031 is fine, but I'd still be a landlord for a different building. Is there some way I, I could still have the benefits of the real estate, get out of this property I'm in and not have to pay the taxes? Yes. It's something called a Delaware statutory trust. So what's that? Well, you don't have to be in Delaware and you can basically buy these from the financial institution of your choice. And the beauty of a DST is that you're not a landlord anymore. Basically what you're really doing is you're essentially buying shares in a real estate mutual fund. 
so now you have shares in a portfolio you make money and guess what it qualifies as 1031 property so now you're not a landlord anymore but you're still earning money and in bonus suppose somebody's retiring and they say well you know look this building has served me well but it's time to sit on the beach if you sell the property you're not going to spend all the money in that one year for most people but you get taxed on it all in that year that's a big hit with the dst you only sell the shares that you need to cash out so you have all the other shares you're not paying tax on you're not going to sell them until years down the road not pay tax years down the road and earn on money that otherwise would have been gone because you went ahead and you pay taxes on so that's something else you can do another part another thing we want to do with dsts for those listeners that are, that are familiar with 1031s when you do them there's some mumbo jumbo where you have to go ahead and name other properties and there's there's time periods there's strict time periods we have to do everything and i can't tell you how many clients have walked in the door and have talked to me as a practicing tax attorney and they're waving a piece of paper at me and they say but this was a done deal. It was a done deal. The minute lawyer here is done deal. You know, oh, something's going wrong. And something fell through. And all of a sudden, they get hit with taxes on the sale of the property that they didn't plan to pay. And now they don't have the cash for it. The beauty of the DST is I always tell the clients, name that as one of the properties. And even if you see, well, I don't want a DST. I really do want another building. Name a DST anyway. Because if the other building or buildings you name falls through, you're still within the statutory time period, can buy the DST from the financial institution of your choice and not get taxed. So there's a lot of things like that. And, you know, I, I could go on and on and on. But, it, but again, this is just some of the things you can do with real estate. But between the 1031s, between you know the cost segregation analysis with the step up in depreciation with with the depreciation mm -hmm. there's so much you can do another thing with property if you are doing estate planning or you say you know what i bought this building when i was a young man and i bought it for ten thousand dollars and it's worth a million now and i'd like to give it to my grandson well that's nice but if you give it to them and grandson sells the property the next day then grandson says okay sales price a million adjusted basis which is essentially grandpa's cost is 10. i have a profit of 990. i have to pay capital gains tax on it so capital gains tax is maybe about half the ordinary income tax for most people but it's still paying a tax and we don't want to do that. That's why you're listening to this podcast. So if grandpa said, well, okay, son, uh, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll go ahead and I'll leave that to you through my trust or my will. I'll pass it to you when I go to the other side, when I go to my reward, you get what's called the step up in basis. So now when grandson takes the property, instead of having a cost of, essentially 10 grandpa's cost he gets fair market value at date of death and there's alternative valuation date too so in my example if grandson sells the property the next day now it's sales price a million minus 
adjusted basis a million, tax profit zero, taxes zero. And there's so much else you can do with the properties. For example, suppose you have this, suppose you have husband and wife, they don't have any kids. And what they'd like to do with their estate, their fortune, their house, they'd like to give it to the charity of their choice, but after they pass. So suppose we have this situation, husband and wife living in the house, and they say, we're gonna live here the rest of our lives. And when the second of us passes, the charity of our choice will get the property. That's nice, but there's no income tax benefit. So instead they can do something called the CRT, Charitable Remainder Trust. So what happens is an actuary comes in, he values the property, and then physically the couple live there the rest of their lives. Do they live another hundred years? Fine. But when the second of them passes, then and only then does the charity get the property. But because of the law, we split the property theoretically between a life estate, that's what the couple kept, and a remainder interest, that's what they've given away in the future to the charity. They get a tax deduction for the fair market value of it now. So for example, suppose you say, okay, look, my house has an equity of a million dollars. The actuary went ahead and valued it. And what we kept was worth 300. And what we gave away was 700. You have a $700,000 tax deduction right now. So physically, everything's the same. Physically, husband and wife are living there for the rest of their lives. Well, now they can enjoy their lives more because they have a $700,000 tax deduction. Therefore, they pay less tax and they have more money to spend as they please. And you say, well, you know, that's great, Steve, but I don't have $700,000 of income. How about me? That's okay because you can carry forward what you don't use. So again, I mean, it goes on and on and on. Another thing you can do is you say, well, you know, I have this, this property and I have a big house and that was great when you know, I had a lot of kids and the kids were small. Kids are all grown and married now. And then the wife and the husband are kind of rattling around this boy. We'd like to sell it. But, you know, we bought it 40 years ago when we bought it for a song and it's worth a lot of money now. Boy, we'd have a giant tax if we sold it. So, and... I'll, I'll skip the mumbo jumbo and the technicalities, but there's a way where you go to the charity of your choice and you make a partial gift to them. And then they give you back a stream of income for the rest of your life. And what happens is because you're giving the property to a charity, you're getting a tax deduction for the portion you've given away. If you sold the property, you'd have that big capital gains tax. But if the charity sells it, they don't pay any tax. So what's left over to invest is a lot more and they can give you a lot more. I could go on and on and on, but I think you're getting the idea here that it's not just, you know, some brick and mortar thing there. There's a lot of stuff you can do with it. And we haven't even talked about opportunity zones yet. All right. Well, let me, let me ask you a simple question because I know you touched on it. Cost seg, I've, I've heard that term used before. Um, do you want to, do you want to, so, so take that same example. The wife is a surgeon husband is the, you know, house husband, he's the real estate professional. They buy a, you know, a million dollar property, a 10 unit apartment complex. Describe like how a cost segregation would be the benef beneficial to them in that scenario. 
So if they went ahead and bought the apartment complex, that would be residential property and would be depreciated over 27 and a half years. So it's not commercial property has been depreciated over 39. So you'd have to wait and take your depreciation benefits over 27 and a half years. But you say, well, wait a minute. If I could take greater depreciation in the early years, I'd have that money to invest because I didn't pay the taxes. I can use, I think about, I, I have money that otherwise would be gone. I have a check to the IRS. Instead, I get to keep that money and I can invest it. And by the time I have to pay something, I have a whole fund of money, earnings from this money that I otherwise never would have had. So we send an engineer to the property. The engineer literally goes through all the property and they say, okay, what's, what's the construction of this property? Well, this part of the property has a, a and again, we're not talking about physical lives. We're talking about depreciation lives, nothing to do with physical life. This has a, a legal life of a much shorter time period than 27 and a half years. So they actually go through and they dissect that nothing is physically taken apart. No guys are coming and swinging hammers and blowing stuff up. But the, the engineer dissects what's all in that property. And he or she says, okay, this property can be depreciated over 15 years. This other property can be depreciated over 10 years. This property, and they go with things like the carpets and the vents, and they just go through that whole property with a fine tooth comb. And the bottom line is, if you don't do it, you just depreciate over the normal life. And in your example, 27 and a half years. With the cost seg, you say, well, no, no. Yes, I'm depreciating the actual structure itself over 27 and a half years, but all the stuff in the structure has a much shorter legal life, therefore giving me a bigger depreciation. And as long as you don't go below zero, you don't even have to be a real estate professional. So that's fine. But the reason you want to take a look at real estate professional is if through the use of this engineer, through these paper entries, mm -hmm. you go below zero, you want to be able to offset that depreciation against profits from a business, wages, dividends, interest, things like that. That's why with these things, a lot of times when you talk about, see, that that's one of the things. It just, it kills me when we take a new client, oftentimes the question I'll get is, oh, wow, is this stuff all brand new? No, it's been around for years. Well, how come my guy didn't tell me about that? Why did my CPA tell me about that? I said, well, that's why you're here. And that's why you left him. But for every person that does that, there are so many people that don't have the benefit of listening to this podcast, never heard of this, and for every, for the rest of their lives, for years and years and years, they're going to go into their CPA. CPA says, hello, how are you this year? And I call it March Madness. They're going to grumble. Oh, you know, the taxes are so high. Can't you do something? And CPA says, well, you made a lot of money. Got to pay a lot of taxes. Oh, yeah, that's so unfair. Let me that check out, too. And to me, doing a tax return, Remember, well, I based my whole career on tax planning. A tax return is a mere summary of a year's worth of tax planning. That's what a tax return should be. And it's not for most people. For most people, it's just, okay, give your forms to the CPA. 
and CPA will move the numbers from one, basically one piece of paper to another piece of paper. Now it's tax planning. Most people never heard of these concepts, even though they've, they've been around and are making a fairly decent amount of money. So in this, in this scenario, in your experience, so you're buying a million dollars, you can, it, it, and I also want to touch on the bonus depreciation, which you mentioned. So that cost segregation, that can drastically change because of all the different things like you've listed that are in the property. Absolutely. So you can, you can potentially benefit 20% in, in year one as a depreciation. Is that? Well, sometimes it's a lot more. So it, it, think of the structures of the property, what's in there, you know, like the heating and air conditioning, the carpets, the windows, the, en the engineer really goes through and does a thorough, what is it? Like, think of it like this. Suppose we were cooks and you present me with a nice, delicious cake. But I say, well, you know, what's in the cake? Well, there's some eggs and there's some sugar and there's some flour and there's some milk. We kind of deconstruct it and now we know, okay, what's in this cake? That's what the engineer does. What's in this building? And then the legal lives of the components are a lot less than the actual building itself. That's the whole secret of cost segregation analysis. So the bonus depreciation comes from what you come up with in the cost segregation, is that correct? So bonus depreciation is, is really kind of different because okay. what bonus depreciation does, it allows you to write off in the year of acquisition, a lot of things that you purchase. So what happens is normally when, when you purchase a capital asset, you have to write it off over its legal life. But with bonus depreciation, you get to write off the whole thing. So instead of depreciating over a period of years with bonus depreciation, you actually expense it. You write the whole thing off in the initial year. It's even better. And these things can be combined. See, one of the things I want to tell you about tax planning, it's not one thing. It's, it's like a cake. Yeah, I have some eggs, but that's not a cake. I have some flour, but that's not a cake. I have some milk, I have some sugar. Yeah, they're all valuable components. You could just eat the eggs by itself. But the idea of making the cake, you mix these things together and you have something a lot better than just the eggs. So that's what happens with tax planning. You say, well, okay, I have bonus depreciation. So bonus depreciation lets me write off in the initial year of you know, what I purchased, which would be a lot of money. Cost segregation analysis basically speeds up greatly the depreciation that I'd have to take normally over 27 and a half or 39 years. And then what happens is you go ahead and you do them together. And that's why you say, well, wait a minute, do I have one of the spouses? As, as long as you stay at zero or above, you don't even need, I mean, nobody even needs to be a real estate professional. Where a real estate professional comes in is if everything's at a loss, at a tax loss, I want to be able to write that loss off against other income. So that's how you marry these things. It's really nice. Great stuff. So I, I do want to touch on, because um, you you have you mentioned about you know defending in court. What what would? So I'm a dentist. I've done some things with my taxes that I'm not ecstatic about. I'm concerned with an audit. Talk a little bit about what and what what someone would see facing an audit. Just. Give us some realities of what an audit actually is and how it looks. The audit is absolutely nothing to fear 
and the auditor has zero power over you. The only thing the auditor can do is suggest, and if you don't agree with it, there's a very effective system over his or her, and let's explain that. When you do an audit, you go, now with most people, the smart thing is you don't wanna go in on the audit. You send your lawyer to go there for you. In almost all cases, we can speak for the client. The client doesn't have to be there with us. There's nothing the client can do to help us, but there's a lot he can do to harm his case, much, much like surgery, where there's a reason why they put you to sleep. It's not just to say you won't feel any pain. They don't want you jumping around and doing stuff. There's a reason they don't, they don't want you awake. There's a reason the lawyer doesn't want you there. You're not going to help. You can only hurt. So you meet with the auditor. And in fairness to auditors, that's, that's a lower level. And they really have very little discretion. They have some. And with a lot of things with an auditor, it's yes or no, black or white. It's a light switch. It's either on or it's off. And what a lot of people don't realize, most people, when they think about tax, they think, oh, you know, tax is just, it's yes or no. But if you look at the, the tax law, the tax cases, you'll see that the, the courts are split all the time. So suppose you say to me, Steve, I'd like to deduct X. Can I do that? And suppose that, well, let's say, look, let's look at the cases. And there's 100 cases on point. And 70 cases say yes. And 30% of the cases say no. Well, and what is it? There's a box. I either put the number in or I don't. What do I do? That's the big difference between being a CPA and being a lawyer. A lot of CPAs would say, oh, you know, some cases say you can't do that. You better not deduct it. Lawyer says, hey, there's cases that say you can do it. Go ahead and deduct it. So you meet with the order and the order says, aha, well, you, you naughty, no good, Nick, you, you deducted X and I'm going to disallow that. So you present your case and you present everything that you can, but now the order says he's going to disallow that. And you say, well, Mr. or Ms. Auditor, you're too tough for me. You issue your report. And then the auditor issues his or her report and says, you owe a bunch of money. Now, there's a big difference between CPAs and lawyers. You can, most, by the way, most people at the audit level are very grateful they're not going to prison and they make payment. Most people don't go beyond the audit level. That's a big mistake if the lawyer says you owe anything. But most accountants go directly to what's called appeals and they plead the case to the appeals officer. As tax lawyers, we don't do that. So what happens is you get a series of letters from the IRS, but the important one is something called the notice of deficiency. The notice of deficiency gives you 90 days to file a tax court petition. The filing fee is $60. So we file the tax court petition. And essentially, we say, my client doesn't owe the taxes, and here's why. Then the IRS lawyer and his or her answer says, why, well, yes, you do, and blah, blah, blah. Then it goes to the tax court. The tax court hears all the tax cases for all the big corporations and mom and pop and individuals, all the cases in the country. And you know what? There's 19 presidentially appointed judges. So wait a minute. 
Well, well, did you did I hear that right? 19? 19. You say, well, wait a minute, there's 50 states. How does that work? They literally travel around the circuits like Abraham Lincoln did before he became president when he was a lawyer and he was a judge. They, they travel all over the country. Same 19 judges. Those judges really do not want you in their courtroom. But you have the right to be there. So how does that work out? So when we file the petition and the IRS has their answer, the judge never sees the case. It goes back to a settlement officer and the settlement officer is a much different person than an auditor. Now, but the settlement officer, also known as an appeals officer, is the same person that the accountants would appeal directly to. You say, well, wait a minute, Steve. If you're going to be with the exact same person, why in the world did you spend $60 of your client's money and take such a circuitous path to get to the same place? Ah, two reasons. One, statutorily, the burden of proof shifts from the taxpayer to the government for any new issues raised by the government. So you have to realize this appeals officer is far more experienced than the auditor. And a lot of times orders miss things that they should have picked up. So you were worried about something that was on your return, but there were six other things that were questionable too on your return, the order never even saw. But the appeals person's far more likely to because they're more experienced. So what happens by filing the tax court petition first, now the burden of proof is shifted from you, the taxpayer, to the government for any new issues raised by the government. So number one, they usually don't do it. And timing wise, they don't have enough time because the case doesn't get to the settlement officers until close to trial. They don't have time to do it. So you get a free pass on that. But I said there was two reasons. What's the other reason? Statistically, the appeals officers give a much better settlement rate to what's called docketed cases. A docketed case is what we've done. We've docketed the case into tax court. Why? Because the accountants, the appeals guys know that's the final stop. The accountants can't go past that. The accountants can't go into court. And the appeals guy will usually give you something more, but not nearly as much because he knows he's the final word. Whereas by docketing in the tax court, Unless we have to file a form to take it out. So if, if we forget all about this or don't agree or don't do anything after a certain period of time, the case will automatically go from the appeals officers to the tax court. We actually have to do something to stop it from going. They give you a much better deal. So we say, okay, chances are with these settlement officers or appeals officers, we'll get a much better deal than the auditor. And remember the, the auditor was a light switch on or off. The appeals person is a dimmer switch. It can go off, it can go on, but any shade of light in between. And a lot of times they'll split the baby with you. For example, remember I, I told you that we wanted to deduct X and there's a hundred cases and 70 said yes. And 30% said no. Most appeals officers will start off with what's known as a scientific determination and it's called hazards of litigation. They say, okay, look, government will allow 70% of what you did, 
based on the 70% of the cases that said yes, and you can see it on 30. And if you want that, you say, well, okay, I'll do that, but no penalties. Or if you think you can do better, you'd say, well, okay, you know, I thanks, I appreciate your working with me, but I'm gonna take my case to court. So again, a lot, of, now if we're thinking of the pyramid of audits, most people never get beyond the initial audit. If you owe money, that's usually a big mistake. Of those, most people usually conclude the case with the appeals officer. But suppose we think we can do better. So now release it for litigation. Guess what? We get a second settlement attempt with the IRS attorney. Why is that? Well first, <laughs> well, first of all, there's a general order from the court the counsel have to meet and confer. Remember, those 19 judges don't want you in their courtroom. They don't have time for you. They want you to settle. But now you're getting closer to them. <laughs> So what happens is double secret uh, probation. <laughs> so what happens is let's think of it from the IRS attorney's point of view. You ever see about criminal plea bargaining on the TV? They see a lot of TV shows about that. Yes. Yeah. So what happens is you'll see something where somebody is accused of the most heinous crime known to mankind, the murder of a tax attorney. And his defense attorney plea bargains him down to aggravated double parking. Well, why is that? Because the whole court system is based on there's not enough time to hear every case. There's 19 judges, there's 19 presidentially appointed judges. They don't have the time. The IRS lawyers are like prosecutors. If, if you've ever gone into criminal court, you always know who are the defense attorneys and who are the government attorneys. The government attorneys walk in with a large stack of file folders in their arms. They have too many cases. Defense attorneys come in with a lot less cases. So you can you just, in fairness to everybody, you have a lot more time to prepare. So if you go to trial, both sides have to do what's called a post-trial brief. And the post-trial brief, that's where both lawyers pour over the transcript and you say, well, you know, on, on page three here on line 19, when Mr. Jones testified, it's inconsistent on page 79, line three, where he said, so and so. that's a lot of work, takes a lot of time. If you settle the case, you don't have to do post-trial briefs. It's a quick appearance in front of the judge. <clears throat> Your Honor, we've settled the case. Judge will look at the other lawyer. Is that right, counsel? Yes, Your Honor. Thank you, next. So the IRS attorneys have a big incentive to go ahead and settle the case. Usually they'll give you still more, <coughs> excuse me, or you can go, go right ahead and go and talk about the case. And if that's the case, testimony becomes very important. The IRS would have you believe if you don't have a receipt for everything, that's, that's it, you lose, wrong. Your testimony is worth a lot. People don't realize that. You can testify and your witnesses can testify and your witnesses can be your friends, your coworkers, anybody that has personal knowledge of something. So you say, well, okay, let's take a look at a famous case. Joe Fraser, the boxer. 
Joe Fraser took some tax deductions for his farm in Buford, South Carolina. And Joe didn't have any receipts. And the IRS tried to, forgive me, knock him out because he didn't have his receipts. So Joe went to tax court. And Joe's only witness was his aged mom. His mom testified that Joe really spent this money. And guess what? The tax court judge found for Joe. And the tax court judge wrote about Joe's mother and he said, he looked at Joe's mother and he saw an honest woman. He listened to Joe's mother and he heard an honest woman. He believed her and he found for Joe. So that's something that, that you have to realize that when you see the portrayal of the IRS or if you have the misfortune to go ahead and, and try and do an audit yourself, you have an auditor, which is oftentimes a very strict sounding person that sounds very authoritative, who may say, you have no recourse, but the sign here, this allowed, blah, blah, blah. That's not the way real life works. And also with receipts, most people don't have the proper receipts. If you talk to me about tax planning, keep every receipt. You buy somebody a cup of coffee, keep a receipt, keep your receipts forever. But that's not real life. Most people don't. So let's look at this. If you don't have a birth certificate, that doesn't mean you were never born. So if you have to prove it, you prove it some other way. And a big thing we do is something called substitute evidence. And if you don't have your actual evidence, there's a lot of other things you can do. Suppose, for example, you're a trucking company and you've made a certain amount of money and all your drivers bought all the gas for cash and they never got any receipts. Or it'll say, oh, okay, no receipts, disallowed. So, well, wait a minute, it doesn't make any sense. Don't throw common sense out when you do an audit. So you say, well, look, my trucks would have to drive X number of miles to earn this kind of gross revenue. And the average mile per gallon these trucks get is, is Y. So do the math. I would have to buy, and the average price of gasoline was that, I would have to buy so much gas in order to make this revenue. You can do things by showing pictures. You don't have the receipt, but I can show you a picture of the equipment I was using. Testimony of anybody that has any knowledge, friends, coworkers, people you do business with. There's so many ways to prove it, but the bottom line is this, an audit is not something to be afraid of. And, and over the years, what I've talked about so much on TV and radio is people are so terrified of an audit, they, they don't take everything to which they're legally entitled. And what I say is most people cheat on their tax returns. They cheat themselves by not taking everything to which they're legally entitled. If you do get examined, so what? There's a lot of ways to prove things. You wouldn't say you'll never drive a car again because, you know, a cop might pull you over. That's a confrontation with organized law enforcement. Well, you could avoid never having a cop pull you over if you never drove. But you'd say, well, you know what? I'll, I'm happy to drive my vehicle. And if a cop pulls me over, I'll show him my driver's license and registration insurance. I'm fine. Same thing with an audit. Nothing to be afraid of. And again, this is an area that I'm really passionate about also. I could literally, and I, I know I shouldn't do it, but I could take hours and hours and hours of your podcast explaining to you all the different ways that you can prevail in an audit, regardless of your facts and circumstances. And I realize people are not perfect. If people were perfect, there'd be no work for lawyers. And this is human. IRS isn't perfect either. 
And the bottom line is there's so many ways to win your case. And back when I was a professor, this was like a whole semester I'd go on and on. I could really take up a lot of time, but, you know, as you know, I love talking about taxes. I could go on and on and on, but I would say that there's so many different ways to prove your case. That's great stuff. Um, let's continue on that vein. So let, let, let's, let, I mean, well, let's move out of audit, but let's talk more about some of the deductions and I know you've mentioned it before let's talk a little bit about the R&D and then the ERC let's talk first about R&D research and development credit so the first thing is let's make sure your listeners know the difference between a credit and a deduction yep let's assume I have a deduction for 100 and I'm in the 30 percent tax bracket that saves me 30 of taxes same facts but instead of a hundred deduction, I have a hundred credit. I'm still in the 30% tax bracket. It saves me a hundred in taxes. It's dollar for dollar. So this is a credit. And one of the beauties of this is that with most things in tax, you have to go ahead and spend some money. So I said, well, look, you know, if you spend X number of dollars, like in pensions, I could do a whole section on pensions, retirement accounts. So if you spend X number of dollars, which is very worthwhile for your business, you would get a tax deduction of Y. That's nice. But with R&D, you're not spending a new penny. With R&D, we come in, we take a look at your current year, and we can amend the last three years too. And we see, did what you do qualify for R&D? And if it is, We'll save you taxes on the current year and get you back a check for the last three years. So what qualifies? Essentially, we are improving a process. We're creating something. And it doesn't have to be new to the world. It has to be new to you. So you don't need a lab full of scientists in white jackets. You have gone ahead and you've done a procedure. And with dentists, that applies an awful lot. We do a lot, a lot of R&D with dentists. Because you say, well, you know what? Clients come in and they need a crown. But I, I found this way here to do this better or more efficiently. And you get all kinds of credit for that. And, and guess what? Suppose you say, you know what? I'm a practicing dentist. And, you know, when people have a cavity in tooth number so-and-so, it always causes a special problem. And I'm going to do some work and some research and I'm going to test and I'm going to have my scientific models and I'm going to go ahead and trial and error. I'm going to do all kinds of things. And I'm going to find an improvement, a way to fill that, that tooth number X. And guess what? You never do. You still get the full credit. All that you have to do is try. Now, if you produce it, it's great or software. But with dentists, we do a lot of R&D and we're improving the process and there's, there's so much involved there. So what we do is we study what is this. And then again, that's where the accounting background comes in handy because we're allocating of the money that you've spent in this year, in the past three years, how much can I say that we can allocate to R&D? That's one of the beauties of R&D. And the government writes you a check. Again, it goes back to that system of incentives the government really does want you improving processes and service 
and product. And here you have an awful lot of that. And in the dental field, you have a tremendous opportunity even to try. That's the big thing. As long as you try, you get the full credit, even if it doesn't work. Great stuff. Great stuff. Now, the, the other two, I did forget retirement. We'll touch on that. If we have we have time. But the ERC, the employee retention credit, you want to cover that? This is a great government giveaway. The government will give employers up to $33,000 per employee for the 2020-2021 time period. And how do we figure that out? So, well, if we have 10 employees, we can get up to 330,000, 20 employees up to 660,000 and so on. And the way that works is you get for 2021 for each quarter, 10% of the first, excuse me, 7%, 7% of the first $10,000 that you've paid with non-PPP money. So that means you can have 7,000 a quarter. Well, 70%. So what we have, let's, let's go back again. Well, I thought you said 7%, 70%. Uh, 70, 70. Yeah. So what happens is you get 70% of the first 10,000 you pay your employees with non-PPP funds. So if you have somebody you've paid 10,000 or 10 million, it doesn't matter. It caps out at 70% of 10,000 or $7,000 per quarter. So that means you get up to 7,000 a quarter times four quarters is 28 plus five for 2020. They weren't nearly as generous in 2020. That's 33,000. So the bottom line is what you have to watch out for and in practice, What's, what's tripping up a lot of people is this ERC, Employee Retention Credit. The law has changed and changed and changed again in a very short period of time. And if you look on the internet, you are going to get a lot of information that's old. A lot of people, when they put something up, when the law changes, they don't bother to take it down. So what happens is there's a lot of people that are, call me on other matters. And I talk about this on radio all the time. They call me on other matters. And they say, oh, well, I don't qualify for ERC. And I said, what makes you think that? And they'll tell me, says, well, no, that's the way the law used to be, but that changed. Or they'll misinterpret something. They'll have a lot of that. Or they do calculations wrong. So the bottom line is we say, okay, this is fantastic. And what you have to watch out. When this first came out, when PPP and ERC first came out, you had to choose one or the other. So if you took PPP, no ERC for you, that's it. Then the government changed their minds and said, you know what, if you have PPP, that in and of itself won't stop you from having ERC. You just can't get the 70% on the PPP funds, but that's okay because there's plenty of time that you're gonna have outside of that. Now, I'm gonna go over that in a minute. So the bottom line is, what do you have to do to qualify? The first thing you need to do to qualify is one of two things. You either have to be fully or partially closed by the government. 
or meets the mathematical standards. So let's talk about fully or partial closure. We understand full closure, but what's a partial closure? Let's have two examples. One, a restaurant. Let's say that the restaurant, the, the local government says, you can still do delivery, you can still do takeout, but you can't do in-person dining. That's a partial closure. You qualify. I don't have to do the math. Let's assume the local government says, well, okay, you can reopen the restaurant at 25% capacity. That's a partial closure because there's 75% you can't, and so on. People miss the partial closure all the time. Or if you're a dentist, suppose you say, you know, I can't use aerosols. That is a partial closure. So the first thing we look at is, were you fully or partially closed? If the answer is yes, that's it, qualify. Then we say, okay, what do we do? So let's assume we have this example. Let's assume we have employee one and employee one gets paid 14,000 for the quarter. Of that 14,000, 3,000 was paid with PPP money. Let's do the math. We say, okay, 14 minus three. So we've paid 11,000 with non-PPP money, but we max out at 10. So I get 70% of the first 10,000. I get a credit of 7,000 for employee one. Employee two is paid 9,000 with PPP money. I get 70% of 9,000 or 6,300 and so on and so on. 9,000 of non-PPP money. Right, non-PPP money. But if you think about it, most people are gonna qualify because let's talk about first two quarters of, and, and even that change, because originally the ERC was only for 2020. And then the government said, okay, we're gonna extend it to quarters one and two of 2021. And they said, no, we're gonna extend it to all four quarters of 2021. So stuff keeps changing. And also with PPP, the government kept changing and changing and changing yep. rules, but they kept making it more favorable for the taxpayers. And that's the idea here. And that's what we believe will be done here in the interpretations. This was set not to make the government money was to prevent an economic disaster, much worse than the 1930s. So they're giving the money away. And another beauty about the ERC, a big, big difference between PPP or even other programs with the PPP, the government set aside a certain amount of funds and they said, okay, first come first serve. And once the PPP runs out and then PPP too, once it runs out, that's it all done. No more for you. So it was a mad scramble. It's kind of like taking a bunch of hungry dogs, throwing out a pork chop and letting them fight over it. And there's no more for all the hungry dogs with ERC. There's no limit. There was not a government set aside. They set aside so much money. This is U.S. Treasury, unlimited funds. So you don't have to worry about the same things where, oh, you know, I didn't get the PPP right away and they ran out of money. They're not going to run out of money on this one. That's part of the beauty. So number one is we can qualify with fully or partially closed. But if you weren't, if you say, you know what, I, I, I wasn't, I was an essential business. I wasn't closed at all. Then what happens is there's a mathematical calculation where basically you take a look where quarters one and two of 2021 down 20% or more from quarters one and two of two years before in 2019, 
then there's some safe harbor quarters that would also bring additional quarters, which I'll just tell you they exist, but if I start giving you the rules, your, your head's gonna spin. So if you don't qualify on the strict quarter one and quarter two, don't give up for some other things, some safe harbors. And then 2020 was much tougher here. You had to be down by 50% or more. So you have a lot of people that if they're not qualifying on the first fully or partially closed, they would qualify on the math for 2021, some for 20, some not for 20. But again, we go ahead and calculate that. But the idea here is, this is a government giveaway. It's a grant. So you don't give it back. It's not a loan. You don't have to apply for forgiveness. You don't have to spend it in a certain way. The money is yours to do with as you please. It is a big, big, big deal. It's a gift from the government. All right. Perfect. Now you touched on it before. Talk to us why a retirement plan is a good thing. This is fantastic. It has a number of rules. First, number one, we decrease our taxes. Always a good thing. Next, unlike other investments, you don't pay tax on your earnings while the money is sitting in the fund. And most people, that money will sit there for many years, although it doesn't have to. And the bottom line is think of the difference in your investments. If every year, instead of giving up to half of your earnings to the government, you left 100% of your earnings in that account and you had earnings on the earnings on the earnings. So the time you retire, obviously, if you had two identical accounts, one was a retirement account and one was not, and you paid taxes on the one that's not, and you took a look at the account over the years between the regular account and the retirement account, the retirement account would be so, so, so much bigger. Another thing is it's what's known as an exempt asset. So with an exempt asset, it's safe. It's unfortunate that in the medical area, you guys are all walking around with targets on you. And you know, sometimes a jury will see a dentist and say, you know what? Oh, he's the rich dentist. He makes so much money and that's not fair. So I'm gonna get even with him and I'm gonna award a lot of money to that poor suffering plaintiff. You can, one lawsuit with a judgment in excess of your malpractice insurance can wipe out a lifetime of earnings and savings, but they can't touch your pension, it's exempt. And the example for this, although I do hate to mention his name, is O.J. Simpson. O.J. Simpson has a multi-million dollar judgment against him for wrongful death, but he's not lost one penny of his pension. And even if everything goes wrong for you and you have to go bankrupt, you'll lose almost all of your other assets, except for a little exemption amount. But your pension, you keep 100% of your pension. So you get sued, you go bankrupt, you keep 100% of it, it's safe. And as still another benefit, there's a cash flow. So suppose, for example, you're listening to this podcast and you say, wow, you know, I have my 2020 tax return on extension and I got to pay such a big tax bill this year. I sure wish I'd heard this guy, Steve, before because I would have set up a pension. I could save a lot of money. Guess what? There's a special rule. Although most expenses, you have to pay them by 
December 31st of year one to deduct it in year one, not with a pension. With a pension, and there's all, there's all kinds of pensions. Most people are familiar with the simple ones like 401ks and IRAs and SEPs and all that. But there's over 20 different types and there's what I call the fancy pension. A lot of these pensions can be set up up to the time of filing the return plus extensions and, and funded then. So for example, you say, well, okay, here, here I am. I'm listening to this in 2021. I have my 2020 return on extension. Do you know you could still set up the pension, fund it up until the time the extensions do, and deduct it from 2020, even though you wrote the check in 2021? So the bottom line is you'd have to make this tough decision. Do you want to write that check to the IRS and the state? Or do you want to write a big piece of it to yourself? Thought of, let's think of it another way. Suppose you're in a state where we have state income taxes as well. So effectively your tax rate is half or even more. Suppose I said that you could take a $200,000 tax deduction. If you decide not to do that and say, okay, no problem. Instead of writing that check to yourself for 200, write a check to the taxing authorities for 100 for the privilege of not having a pension. Pensions are so incredibly powerful and the clients just love them because all, and by the way, you can mm -hmm. have multiple pensions. So you can have, you can still keep your 401k and your other pensions, but add what I'll call the fancy pensions. And there's still more you can do with pensions. They're so flexible. But suppose you have this situation. Suppose you have an unusual year. And suppose this year you just do Boku. This is just an incredible year for you. And you've made just an extraordinary amount of money. It happens sometimes in business. You say, well, I'm, I'm really glad I made this incredible amount of money. Or I don't want to pay an incredible amount of taxes. With some of the pensions, there's a way to make multiple tax year contributions within one calendar year. And the reason you make the multiple year contributions in the one calendar year is to offset that BOKU earnings. So, and, and again, with all these subjects, I'm just, I'm just teasing and touching the surface with retirement accounts. There's a lot more that you can do and you say well you know besides being a dentist i also have some investment income i sure wish i could offset that there's a way if we set up a separate company that we can so the bottom line is it, it, it's kind of like it's like dentistry you know everything is individualized if i said to you you know i'd like to have a dental appointment please i would sit down in your chair and you would examine me and say steve for you I'd recommend this and this and this. And I say, okay, thank you, doctor. That's what we do with taxes. You know, we've talked about a number of things today, but again, we still scratch the surface. So if I'm doing your tax planning, I'd say, well, wait a minute, let's, let's take a look here. We can have all of these things. We can have the retirement accounts, also known as pensions, cost seg, maybe you have your own building or rental buildings and so on and so on and so on 
we haven't even touched the transactions you can do with your kids, for example, with a building. Suppose you say, well, you know, Steve, that was great what you're telling me about the, the cost seg, and, but my building's fully depreciated, so what am I gonna do? I said, well, you know, President Biden wants to change a lot of our, our laws. For example, right now with estate planning, we have $11.5 million exemption. He's talking about bringing that down to a mill. He's talking about having an estate tax rate around half. I don't want to give half of my estate to the IRS. I want to give it to my loved ones. So we combine these things. So one thing you might say, well, you know what? Right now, while we have the 11 and a half mil, what we want to do is go ahead, get that building out of my estate and go ahead and give it to my kid. You say, oh, but you know, earlier in the podcast, you were talking about stepped up basis. I'd like to have a stepped up basis. President Biden wants to do away with that too. He also wants to do away with the preferential capital gains tax. So a lot of stuff, as you're listening to this podcast, depending on when you're listening to it, maybe tune back with us because these things can change. Little teaser there, little cliffhanger. And what happens, you say, well, I like doing this. Maybe you invite me back. And what happens is you say, well, okay, so let's see. I, I used up my exemption before the government taxes me on it. And too bad that I had the building all depreciated. Guess what? Now you lease it back from your kid. If your kid's a small kid, you can put in trust for them. You lease it back. Then you pay the kid rent, basically rent. You get a tax deduction. Essentially, you're, you're writing off the building a second time. And your kid's in a lower tax bracket. You want to give them money anyway. And you want to do things before these laws change. Mm-hmm. So you have that type of combination. And it's, it's, almost, it's almost infinite. It's, it's kind of like with numbers. If you have so many numbers, you can make so many combinations. It's the same with taxes where you can say, well, gee, you know, I have this. That's why it has to be individualized. So also with the buildings, you say, oh, this is great stuff, Steve but I bought my building a few years ago and I wish I had known that we can do a change in accounting method and do cost seg. So, so again, I just, for the listeners, I'm just touching the surface. There's so, so, so much. It's just like if you were doing a podcast about dentistry, there's so much you could do for a patient and you just can't tell them all in in the space of one podcast, basically say, look, just sit down on my chair and I'll figure it out for you. And that's part of what I'm saying here. There's so very much, now, I'm trying to contain myself because I get really excited when I talk about taxes, but you're getting the feeling from me. I love it. So I, I definitely, I promise I will have you back because Thanks. you more than wet my whistle and I, I, I'm trying to do some of the things that you talk about. So thank you very much. So my if pleasure. people want to get in touch with you, we'll list it all in the show notes, but do you want to give a quick? I'm happy to. You can give me a call. Give us a call. I'm the head of the firm. 888-TAX-DEAL. That's 888-T-A-X-D-E-A-L. 888-TAX-DEAL or MoskowitzLLP.com. Fantastic. So, Steve, thank you very much. Thanks Appreciate so much for inviting me. I promise I'll have you back. And uh, we will be talking in the future because we're going to get going on the I'm ERC. looking forward to it. And I had a great time. Thanks for inviting yeah. me. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank have you. a good one. Thanks. Bye-bye. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Fee-for-Service Dentist Podcast. If you would like to share your fee-for-service story, 
please fill out our contact form at ffsdentistry.com. Also, be sure to join our fee-for-service dentistry Facebook group. For help starting your dental membership plan, visit dentalmembershipdirect.com and membershipmastercourse.com. Finally, for help with in-house financing, visit dentalfinancingdirect.com. And don't forget, your story is what you make of it. This is your name on the door and your reputation on the line. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time.